legacy means a lot of things to a lot of people. To some, it's lasting integrity. It's building and maintaining a history of greatness. It's making an impact on people and community. For others, it's dependable security and assurance in an uncertain time. To us, it's all of that and more. It's a mindset of brother and sisterhood of hardworking people dedicated to doing the right thing for you and those you care about. Of growing today for a better tomorrow. That's what legacy means at Southwestern Legacy Insurance Group. What does it mean to you? Let's talk legacy. Welcome to Let's Talk Legacy. I'm Gary Michaels, your host and founder of Southwestern Legacy Insurance Group. And I'm so excited. Our guest today goes by many names like George Foreman III, G3, Monk. I'm sure there's others. George is an undefeated boxer, an entrepreneur, a mental health advocate, and the founder and CEO of boxing training brands Craft Boxing Club and Mittwork. Inspired by his father, George carries a deep belief in the transformative power of boxing and has built his life around helping others overcome obstacles by applying a fighter's mentality to all aspects of their lives. Really excited to have you on. Welcome to the show, George. Pleasure to be with you. This is awesome. So let's get right into this. A lot of people might not know this, but your father quit boxing for a period of time and and became a, a preacher. And you were born during that time in the early 80s and never knew your father as a boxer until you were four years old, if I'm correct. You were just a preacher's kid, which you say had a real impact on you and how you were raised. So what was that like early getting to know your father and being kind of thrown into that boxing lifestyle and boxing family? Share a little bit about that. It was confusing. It was confusing uh, in, a, in, the, in the funnest way possible. The first time I realized that my dad was a celebrity was I was at a friend's house. Could have been on the weekend and maybe some people were cooking out. And some, you know, someone made, one of the fathers made a remark like, oh, that's George's son because my dad had just had a big fight on TV. I remember, I'll never forget that moment. You know, someone else explained to me that my dad was a celebrity and they weren't even trying to make it a point. It was just, they said it in passing. And I said, well, that's interesting. The other guy, the heads aren't on TV. And, uh, and he was a big deal out of nowhere. So that was confusing because at home, he wasn't a celebrity. Um, he didn't act like a celebrity. He was the most common, you know, guy you ever want to meet as a father. And I've been around other people whose family, you know, who, whose parents are celebrities. And some don't act like celebrities. A lot of them do, though. They'll, you know, go to the movie theaters. They enter a certain way, exit this certain, a certain way. If they go to the movie theaters or when they go to the airport, they enter a certain way, exit a certain way. They move around like a celebrity. And some people do that at home. And my dad wasn't one of those people. Was he trying to protect actually the family like circle and make it as normal as possible? Did, did you feel that way? I just think that's who he is. We call him mother hen. He's like, you have two, a mom and a dad when you have him. Right. I'm not sure what it was all about. Like we like rode around in a passenger van, you know, like he was, he had, you know, made his money, but even when he had a Mercedes and, you know, a sports car, he still carried us around in like a Dodge passenger van. And like, we were still shopping at like Payless shoes, you know? And so that, that growing up, I think as a youngster, that part was interesting. He still made us work our inch. He still made us cut in lawn. He still made us like herd cows and like all these things um, that, you know, a, a quote unquote celebrity might not make their kids do. So like I said, confusing because everybody treats you like a celebrity, gives you the attention like a celebrity, but you don't get the spoils. Right. Right. So tell me about your boxing. So you, you would watch your father train, right? Sit when he was doing color commentary, watch him spar, 
what was your mom's thought and your dad's thoughts about you boxing? My mom first said that she was like, oh no, I always wanted you to be the president. And uh, <laughs> I was like, mom, I can still be the president. <laughs> My dad's response to me even bringing it up was kind of, he always said, you know, once you have a college degree, you can do anything you want to do. Right. So I, I, I checked that box and, you know, he said, he, he discouraged me a little bit. Um, I don't think, you know, why would you want to do that? And so on and so forth. And I just said, I just wanted to have one fight. And then once he realized I was going to do it, he said, well, you know, he's like, if you're going to have one, one fight, let me help you. Right. He said, okay, we're going to make sure you have one amateur fight and the amateur you fight is going to be someone who's only had zero fights as well. That's customary for your first fight to fight someone with someone else with zero fights should be at least. Right. Couldn't find anybody in Houston that wanted their first by first boxers fight to be against George Foreman's kid, so to speak. Were they scared? Was it just, were they scared that he's going to have extra training or just? There was no reason for them to be afraid, but he, you know, we're from Houston and that's where I lived. And even completely aside from my boxing career, this, my dad was a celebrity in the streets. <laughs> like he was, he was, you know, at age of six, at the age of 16, what, what people might call a thug and uh, would fight in the streets a lot. And these guys are still there. Like the people that came up with them in boxing gyms, and I think um, the last thing they were going to do is throw their kid in there with George's kid, right? For whatever reason. That went on for like three or four months. Couldn't find people to fight me. And then he said, well, let's just have a pro fight. At least you can count on the person to show up for the paycheck. We had one fight. And he was like, how was it? I was like, man, that was fun. I don't feel like I really got to like show what I can do or anything like that. And he was like, you want to do it again? I said, yeah. He's like, all right, go rest for a week and we'll get back in the gym. That was it. And I became a professional fighter in that conversation. Really? That was it, huh? So was he involved? Was he your trainer? Was he involved in helping you get your trainer? Was he there? No one else was. Your dad did it all. Yeah, he's my my trainer, my manager, dietitian, strength conditioning. We trained six to seven days a week for five years. Wow. Yeah, it was just something we kind of like, kind of like you go mountain climbing or hiking, and then one day you and your dad are like, want to do Everest? And you're like, all right. When you prepare for Everest, you know it's a pretty intense endeavor. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you, because it sounds like the training that you did with your dad, dragging a Jeep, digging holes. What was training like for you? Training was extremely intense. My God. So the training started once I said, all right, I'm going to train with you. Um, he said, you know, before we start training, you need to you need to run 10 miles. I was traveling with him at the time. I was managing my dad at that time, too. It's really weird. I went from I'm his manager to about a year and a half into my career. He's your manager. <laughs> Yeah, we were traveling and I think like, he was like, you know, did you run your 10 miles yet? And I was like, no, so I ran like three on the treadmill. And he's like, okay, but you got to run your 10 miles outside in boots. Did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? No, 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 no. And I'd been like hanging out on the recumbent bike, not doing much. So finally we were uh, in New York, I think it was. We left and went to Dallas. Still, he kept checking. Did you do it? Did you do it? I'm like, no. Finally, we drive to our ranch. And on the way to the ranch, he stops. He sees a store called... um famous footwear on the side of the freeway and buys a pair of 13 and a half boots. I'm a size 15, like 14 at best, but really a 15. Like I buy, like I'm a size 15 shoe. We get to the ranch and he's like, here's some boots. Let's go. And I'm like, huh? He's like, yeah, go in and get your stuff on. We're going to go for our run. And so I put the boots on and we get to moving. And for 10 miles, I didn't walk. Jog, run, jog, run, jog, run, jog, run. Never walked one time. And in fact, the, the seventh mile, he made me sprint for a mile. I don't know how I did that. And, and and these are in shoes that are one size too small. Boots. Boots that are one size too small. Were you in pain? I was in pain. And then right around like five miles, like it just, everything went numb. As soon as it was over, I remember looking down at my feet 
And because um, I just felt blisters, and I looked down, and there was blood coming out of the back of the boots, blood. And I still have those scars to this day on my heels, both of them. And he said, he's like, all right, we're going to start training. So you had to do that to, for your dad to say, now we're going to get, because you had to go through that pain first. We hadn't thrown a jab. We hadn't done anything. It was just that. So then the next week, he gave me like a few days to recover and then um, went to the gym, boxed a little bit. And then he made me do some long walks. The next week, he was like, okay, meet me at the track. Now, keep in mind, every day I'm like putting gauze around my heels and literally taping my entire foot to slide it just into my, to whatever shoe I was wearing that day. Cause it takes your heel to, you can't heal wounds on your heel, like blisters heal, but like open bleeding wounds. Yeah. The heel, you have to let them air out. They can't like heal in your, in your shoe. So this goes on for a little bit. And he's like, all right, we're going to go out to the track. And so we have a big horse track where, um, we have these, uh, pacing horses. It's like sand. He has me pulling a kind of like ATVs, but you said it, it's like a mini truck. And he attached it to a harness that you would put on like a horse or something. And he had me lean forward and get in front of it and pull it. But it was muddy, right? So it's like, how do you pull something like that in muddy sand? And it was impossible to do it. And I leaned forward and finally I just like dug my feet, my head right into the um, sand and pushed. And I got it to move like an inch and a half maybe. And he yelled, stop, stop. And I, I, I think he thought I was going to get a hernia or something. But he said, stop. And I said, man, I just got it to move, you know? And he was like, I just wanted to know that you would put your face in the mud to get the job done. Wow. That's a huge message. <laughs> and then after that, the next thing was we would drag a Jeep um, up a slight incline about, I think we started with half a mile and then we built up to a mile. Then he taught me how to chop wood. Then he taught me how to dig holes. Then he taught me how to run a wheelbarrow up a hill and then back it down a hill full of dirt. We do a lot of stuff with mallets. Then he taught me how to chop a tree down with a hatchet. My God. How did that translate? Did you feel like it translated to the ring or was it more the mental stuff that you learned from your father? I mean, boxing is about 89% mental, <laughs> right? And then the physical conditioning part, you have to be in better physical condition than any type of athlete in the world, in my opinion. But the rest is mental. So yes, it was very mental. But the mental and the physical is so connected, right? You can't leave your body behind when you're trying to develop your mind and vice versa. No matter how powerful your legs are, if your core is not strong, you can't distribute that power through your hands and vice versa, right? Arms, but if your legs, the, the connection, what's in between your foot, where power comes from and your opponent's face is your core. And so it developed a lot of core strength and also developed a posterior chain if we're just talking physicality, but in a way that was functional. But I think more than anything, it was mental, teaching your body how to survive in deep water and, and feel comfortable in deep water. Um, if you can do that, you can figure it out in the ring. So why you were 16 and 0, right? And 15 by knockout. That's correct. What was it at that time that said you were going to step away from boxing? Yeah, I think I like my dad. Um, neither one of us stepped away from boxing. We started something new that consumed us, you know, and part of it was saying I'm doing this now. I can no longer do this for now. Right. Right. And I think with my dad, he, once he started being a minister, he didn't want to, the idea of balling up his fist was hard, hard for him, but it was because he was being a minister, not because he didn't like boxing, right? I started really being concerned about my finances. Just balancing a checkbook, just like any other normal person, you know? And I had a couple of fights that fell through. And at that point, I'm starting to look forward to these checks, right? Because I haven't been active in the business world for like three years at this point. I said, you know what? I don't think I want my financial livelihood to, to live and die by boxing. But I do know that I love being in the gym. I love teaching boxing. I might be in the gym till 9, 10, 10 o'clock at night, training people for free, by the way. No one ever paid me to do it as a youth center. And so um, I was like, you know what? I do love to do that. 
and it keeps me in the boxing gym, why don't I start a boxing gym that's a for-profit that I can use, number one, so that the gym can sustain itself without having to raise money, but number two, so that I can um, pay my bills with something I love. And then when I want to fight, I can take the fights when it makes sense. That's what it was all about for me. So I said, you know what, let me pause, start the gym, make sure that I open a gym that is outfitted for my training camps perfectly so that when it's time to train, I don't have to leave the gym and I can keep an eye on everything. And so I opened it in Boston and uh, it was 15,000 square foot facility, two full-size boxing rings, 80 bags, uh, sauna, steam room, juice bar, rainfall showers, physical therapy room. It was kind of like Disneyland of boxing. <laughs> the business kept growing like fast. So I opened 12 of those, but still the whole time I want to fight in the back of my head. And then just as I find the time to like get ready to fight again, uh, COVID happens. I ended up parting ways with the company and said, I'll just do something new. And um, I started Craft Boxing. Craft was solely focused on servicing third-party gyms. So we have a retail gym here um, that we open to the public. That's where we film all our content. It's where we refine our best practices and we license them to big box gyms. So we've just opened three in Canada with a company called Good Life. And then we're now working with a few domestic partners to roll out. That's awesome. So it's already another gym and then there's going to be the boxing in it or? Yeah, because like, I, I think we're great at boxing. We have to believe in ourselves, but we don't have to be the best at HR managing uh, the restrooms and, and like maintenance and all that. Like I'm never going to be better than someone who owns a hundred gyms or whatever. But those, the people that go to that gym want to box, right? So why make them have a second membership? That was kind of the idea. So yeah, you walk into a gym, check in, and then you'll see a sign in the back that says Craft Boxing Club. Sweet. And there's a gym back there that's in the building already. That's sweet. Very cool. So um, I know publishing a book is a big deal. You published the book, The Fighting Spirit, which talks about what you call the 12 fight laws. Tell us about some of those laws. Yeah, I think um, those came out of long flights, long drives with my father um, because we would just talk boxing. Like, although I didn't start boxing until I was 25, I was at his hip. He was either in boarding school with my dad since from like age 11 on, right? In his training camps. Um, we just always talking, taking long, like eight mile walks, talking. And so much of it was relating what you learned in the ring to like how you can do it in life. Oh, this here's how you handle that situation. In boxing, you always got to take the first punch. So blah, 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 blah. Make sure you're never bluffing. The, the, you never want to bluff. You, you throw the first punch or you throw a punch, land it, and then you say, hey, I might do it again if you do that, you know? And so that was more of me a way of sharing, here are the things I learned from my father who is a Hall of Famer, um, and everything he was able to relate to me from his boxing experiences that actually helped me in business, helped me in my relationships. That's what that book's all about. Yeah, so your family seems pretty tight, right? You've got four brothers, is that correct? And then how many sisters do you have? God, I, I always lose count. Let me see. So it's me. There's five of Georgia. So it's me, Big Will, Red, Joe, yep. And then, yeah, five sisters, four brothers, five sisters. Yeah. How close is the family? And are you in business with the family or is it more, we spend time as family, but not really business? We couldn't be closer. We couldn't be closer. We're really, really close. And I think I give my dad so much credit because, you know, brothers and sisters, they like argue and all that, like just like any other family, of course. But he made us like, we know each other so well, you know, like we know like the family trips, going to the ranch. Um, going to church together. We just know each other so well, Thanksgivings, et cetera. But we're really, really, really close. That's awesome. So do you still have aspirations to get back in the ring or has that been on your mind? Yeah, I'm actually training right now. Are you? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I think right around 2019, I was at the point where I could have done it, you know? 
And then, like I said, COVID happened. Now uh, I've gotten craft where it needs to be. Um, we'll continue to grow month over month, which is excellent. And, but I, well, I was able to work with, I'd say six or seven of the people at the leadership level from my previous company to help me start craft boxing. And so within about eight, with about 18 months, they're not running the show. So now I have the time to um, go back to, to the sport. So I'm 40 years old. It's uh, definitely a challenge, which is what I'm looking forward to. Um, how do you do it at 40? Um, my dad said his physical prime is at 45, so I'm really not worried about that. But I do know younger guys have uh, advantages. So long story short, I'm training right now, and I'll have my first fight in August. I'd like to fight 10 times between August of this year and August of next year, which is really active. And um, take my time and just get back in shape, get my legs back under me, get my timing together. And then by the end of next year, which would be the end of 2024, uh, fight for the heavyweight title and win. So do you start at the heavyweight or do you start at another weight level first? I mean, unfortunately, I like I started camp at almost 300 pounds. So I have <laughs> to back. I can need to be in a heavyweight. Um, heavyweight's anything over 200. But most of the heavyweights fight somewhere between like 230 and 250. I mean, the heavyweight is such a well-known, people know about the heavyweight champion of the world. Is there as much competition in that level as the other levels? And is there anything different about that level than any other level? You know, we haven't had in a long time an American heavyweight that's really captured everybody's hearts. I mean, Deontay Wilder, I don't know if you know that name, but he's been an outstanding um, American heavyweight. A lot of respect for him. Um, then the rest of the big heavyweights, that have done something over the past, you know, 10 or so years have been from Europe. Great guys, guys that I watch and study and, and a lot of respect for them. But I think for some reason, without an American heavyweight, the attention in the sport kind of dwindles a little bit. Now, the guys at the smaller weight classes, 135, 147, guys like Javante Davis for boxing heads, um, he's a huge name. Floyd Mayweather carried the sport for, I'd say, about a solid 15 years on his back and kept it interesting. Um, and a lot of the people who wanted the biggest paydays tried to shrink themselves to 155, 154, 147. So there's been a lot of gravity around that. But hopefully with a big heavyweight champion that's an American, that, that it'll really drive the sport. You know, Mexico has kept the sport alive. Europe has kept the sport alive. The UK has kept the sport alive. But for, there's something about an American heavyweight champ that's like steroids for the boxing industry. I get chills just hearing you talk. And here you are, you know, with your first fight in August, and you've already in your mind said within a year, I want to be the heavyweight champion of the world. And that that's a legacy. That will be remembered forever. What drives you? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I think um, there's a, a Bible scripture, and I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> Someone had said something, and he goes, now go tell your sons and your sons' sons and your sons' sons. And it could have said your daughters and your daughters' daughters, too. But the point is, tell generations right? And I think stories, without stories, we're stuck. As a civilization, we're really stuck because everything can get destroyed, but stories can be passed on, right? Stories survive slavery. Um, stories survive the Holocaust. Um, stories survive governments and so on and so forth. And so I, I want to leave behind a story. And I think no one's going to leave behind a story about how someone played it safe. No one's going to leave behind a story about someone who rested on their legacy, right? Who rested on it. There are stories about people who stood up on their legacy, um, people who, you know, did impossible things because everybody, I think everybody, I don't care whether you're dealing with 
something at school or your your teacher or mother or with your child or you're dealing coming back for an in, coming back from an injury or you're a new recruit or you're, you're joining the military or you're a billionaire and your kids won't come see you on Christmas everybody's got something they need to get over a hump they need to get over that feels impossible and when they're looking looking for the emotional how they defer to stories and uh, I want to leave a story behind do you have children I have a daughter who's four years old what kind of legacy do you want to leave for your daughter? I just want to, I, number one, I want her to have a father that she feels protected her and provided for. But number two, just like, you know, a, a father, I want her to never consider shrinking, ever. Consider shrinking for someone else or be, because of a situation. I never want her to consider not following her dreams. I never want her to consider not speaking up. Those are all the things I want for my daughter. So you've done so much. You've, you've led businesses, you've built gyms, and you care about the community. You're having breakthroughs of creating a business that goes in a big box, which people would not even think that's something that's possible, but, but you're breaking barriers. Are you completely focused over the next year, year and a half, two years on accomplishing this dream? Or do you, how's your focus on that? Yeah, it is. I mean, I couldn't train more than I trained before, right? Thank God I have a gym that I can train in. So I'm there every day and in, in my, you know, immersed in my business. But I think um, the the goal is broad, right? I think um, the time commitment to boxing is going to be there, and I am focused. But the broader goal is to get more people to box. Yes, we do have mental health epidemic. It's a real problem, and I think more most of us are we're most of us are talking about it more than doing anything, including myself. Right, I'm guilty of that. And so with boxing, um, I I ask myself, what can I do to make a dent? It's something I know how to do. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do know, you know, between our ears, behind our eyes, that's where we all hurt the most, right? Um, it's not in the boxing ring. And I feel like boxing, there's many different ways to combat mental health challenges, exercise. Um, some people it's, are in such severe, you know, situations that medication is what you're going to have to do until you, you know, get on the other side and, you know, maybe wean off. And there's all different situations. Some people, maybe, maybe they never can. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But I do think there's a lot of people who have developed mental health challenges in their adult years or in their teen years. And it's because of environment of things that have happened to them. And I think boxing is like a big hand that can reach in and pull people out of these situations. Just showing up at a boxing gym four to five times a week is life changing. Not fighting, not preparing for a fight, but just showing up at a boxing gym, shadow boxing, slipping your head, right? Um, hitting the speed bag, hitting the double end bag, be it, having to calibrate yourself with something that you can't control, developing a relationship with a boxing coach. When you go to a boxing gym, you're going to socialize, socialize with people you probably would never socialize with. It's a game changer. And I want there to be more boxing gyms. Doesn't They don't have to be mine. I want there to be more, more boxing coaches that make enough money to do it full time. I want boxing to be the most accessible modality in the world. You know, to the extent I can drive eyeballs to it with my boxing career, with my gyms, we're going to start franchising later this year, then great. But all all roads lead to getting more people to box for me. I have my personal dreams and my personal you know goals and so on and so forth, but they all feed into get more people to box. So is your dad still training you now or do you have a different trainer at this point? No, no. My dad, he's there as a mentor, 100%. The biggest mentorship he's given me is don't get hurt. No, I have a coach now that it's just not feasible for my dad to train me. He lives in Houston. I live in, uh, in uh, Southern California. But I have a trainer named Hernan, and uh, he's about as good a boxing coach as I've ever, I've ever met. Um, and so have a lot of faith in him and um, feel really good about it. But I'll be able to call my dad for anything I need, which is he's my father. So That's awesome. There's a new movie out about your father, Big George Foreman. 
Do you have any thoughts on that or the family participated in the making of that? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm excited to watch the movie. I still haven't seen the whole thing yet. You know, I've read scripts and over the years, my dad's been working on the project for about 22 years now. And it all started with, you know, his autobiography, which he published in, I think, 94. And I remember him sitting up all night reading over the manuscripts after it was edited, you know? So to see it finally come to fruition and he did it the right way. It's a feature film. It's, I mean, they're promoting it heavily. This is a story that's going to get told. So I'm really proud of him uh, as a father and uh, I'm excited to see it and, and hopefully it'll get somebody off the couch. I guess the last question I have for you is 20, 30 years from now and someday when you pass, what, what would you want your legacy to be? I think it was always impossible, right? It was always something impossible, seemingly impossible that he tried to do and that he never powered. I think that's it. And for people to know that there were emotional challenges that were seemingly impossible, mental challenges, physical challenges, not just, you know, not just sports, but that that's what he had always saddled up for. You should do it, Jim. You should do it, Jim. That that would be the legacy. Well, um, G3, what people call you. Funny because a lot of my friends call me G Money. G Money. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, George, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, man. And I appreciate the kind words. And thank you for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and want to learn more, visit us at southwesternlegacy.com. Shoot us an email via our easy contact form to find out how you can become an agent or how we can meet your needs for final expense coverage. You can find this and other episodes at letstalklegacypod.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Let's Talk Legacy is a presentation of the Southwestern Legacy Insurance Group, a member of Southwestern Family of Companies.